about how hard it is for American-born Jews who have moved to Israel to prove the authenticity of their heritage. And the article highlighted a young lady named Sharon. Sharon is 38 years of age, and she and her husband were excited about getting married. And so one uh, morning, she left work early to meet her husband at the uh, Tel Aviv uh, rabbinical court where they were going to register uh, to be married. And when she got there, the clerk asked her for her um, <clears throat> mother's birth certificate or for her parents' marriage certificate. And Sharon explained to the clerk that her mother was born in America and therefore her birth certificate did not have um, uh, her Jewishness um, on the birth certificate. It did not indicate that she was um, Jewish. Her mother had uh, migrated to Israel after college uh, from America where she met a young man from Great Britain um, they traveled Europe together, ended up back in England for a while where they got married in a civil ceremony. So um, uh, as she's standing there in front of this clerk this day, the clerk said, well, I need proof that you are Jewish. Traditionally, in the Jewish culture, one is identified by their mother's line not the fathers. And so Sharon said, look, my mother was born in America. They didn't have uh, uh, my, her Jewishness uh, spelled out on the birth certificate, and my mother was married in England. Well, after she waited a while to appear before the judge, she uh, thought to herself, she says, I know my mother's Jewish, I know I'm Jewish. Her two brothers had served in the Jewish military. But Sharon was frustrated because she had nothing to prove her Jewishness. And the judge told her before they could marry in Israel as Jews, they would have to prove, she would have to bring some kind of paper showing proof that she was indeed Jewish. I thought about that. And I want you to think for just a moment. What if you were had to stand before a court today and prove your Christianity? What would you say, what would you show to prove the authenticity of your Christian faith? Some people might say, well, I'm a church member. I belong to a church. Others might say, well, I've been baptized. Or someone might even use the family as their proof that I was raised in a 
Christian home, so therefore I must be Christian. But here's the question. Is that proof enough to validate our profession to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ? This series through 1 John I've entitled Authentic Discipleship because John basically answers the question for us in this letter, how do I know whether my Christianity is real or not? Am I an authentic disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? And he will give three overriding themes, three overall themes throughout the book that he dwells on, that prove whether our Christianity is real or not. He'll talk about um, true belief. What do we believe about the Lord Jesus Christ? He will talk about righteous behavior. Do we obey the commands of Christ? And he will talk about brotherly love. Do I love all the members of God's family? So let's look here. We're going to do an overview of the letter this morning. Um, and then we're going to get into this book verse by verse beginning um, uh, next Sunday or the Sunday after that. So let's look as we talk about, here's the takeaway, authentic Christianity shows itself in true belief, righteous behavior, and brotherly love. John writes this letter to the churches. It's a general letter. It's not written to one particular church, but it's written to the churches in general throughout Asia Minor. And the reason John writes the letter is because of a, a form of heresy called Gnosticism that had found its way into the church. Gnostics believe that matter is evil and spirit is good, that everything material is bad. The only thing that's good is spirit. Therefore, that God could not have become a man in the form of the Lord Jesus Christ because God who is perfect, God who is sinless, could not dwell in an evil, sinful, fleshly body. And John wants the churches to understand that this kind of teaching is wrong. It's false. And it was misleading many of the believers. They were falling into two extremes. One is known as asceticism. That's the practice where we punish or discipline our bodies to um, free the spirit within. Or the other one is licentiousness. And that's the extreme that says, well, if the body is evil and the spirit is good, then it really doesn't matter what I do with my body. Let everybody do what they want. Eat, drink, and party. Do what you want. If you want to fulfill your uh, lustful desires, have at it. If you want to, um, you know, fulfill uh, all of your uh, needs, uh, then go for it. You're, it. 
it's not going to matter what you do to your body as long as you guard your spirit. And the Gnostics were teaching this as if it was truth. And John comes along and writes this letter to offset this false heretical teaching. And the first test, John gives three tests here to prove whether our Christianity is real. Here's the first test. It's what I call the belief test. Do I believe, if I say that I believe in Jesus Christ, do I believe that Jesus is both God and man? Now, this is where John begins. He says, authentic disciples believe in the biblical doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That is, Jesus is God and became man at his birth. Um, this message was in opposition to Gnosticism, which claimed Jesus never took on human flesh because, after all, the body is sinful. He may have appeared human, but he did not really take on flesh. Now, basically, they separated the Jesus of flesh and the Christ of divinity. <clears throat> the Christ of Spirit. Decades earlier, the Apostle Paul had warned the church that false teaching would creep into the church, that false teachers would arise. In Acts chapter 20, he had said this. He said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And then he warned Timothy. He said, now Timothy was the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And Paul had warned Timothy. He said, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching or doctrine but we'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And John is trying to get the churches in Asia Minor to understand that time had come. He had written those words two decades earlier, but now the time had come. These false teachers were there in their midst, espousing their false doctrine. And John says, in effect, you need to know Gnosticism is a lie. Jesus is the God-man. He was God of very God, who in eternity past dwelt with, God, dwelt with God the Father. And in a point in time in history, God the Son became, God the Son became the Son of Man. Divinity took on humanity. And Jesus is both God and man. Now, Jesus, look in chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. Uh, right here at the very beginning of the letter. John says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, which our, we have touched with our hands, 
concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. In other words, John says, look, back in eternity past, before human history ever began, there Jesus was with the heavenly Father. John is stressing the historical reality of the incarnation, and he wants them to know everything else about the Christian life hinges on this truth. Why? And he wants them to understand that true and false spirits are recognized by whether or not they believe this truth. Look, skip over to chapter 4. Look in verses 1 through 3. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh, that's his humanity, is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And then, if you look in verses 14 through 16, he says, We have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, that's his divinity, God abides in him. So here's what he's saying. Only the person who professes in Jesus the man and Jesus the Son of God, only that person knows truly the Lord Jesus Christ. From the church today, let me just say this. The church today, we talk a lot about atheism, unbelief, people who don't believe in God. Can I just say to you this morning, the biggest threat to the church today is not atheism, it's not unbelief. The biggest threat to the church today is wrong belief. Wrong belief. The biggest problem for the church is not the doubter. It's the deceiver, the one who comes along and deceives God's people and deceives others into thinking that, look, as long as you believe in Jesus and that Jesus can be any way you want to make him up, then that's what is important. And John says, no, you have to start at the beginning. You have to start with the understanding that Jesus is God. He's also man. You may say, well, Rick, why is this so important? Because without a fully human and fully divine mediator, you and I cannot be reconciled to God. Friend, our salvation depends on the sacrifice of the human body of Jesus Christ. There is no sacrifice without Jesus' body. On the other hand, if you take away Jesus' divinity, his sacrifice loses its infinite worth. Only God himself could act as the sacrifice the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. So John says, the first proof of whether your Christianity is real or not, 
what do you believe about Jesus? Because it's very important. Everything else hinges on what you believe about Jesus. Jesus was both God and man. And as such, he became the mediator between God and sinful humanity. That's the first test. But there's a second test we find in these verses, in this uh, book. And that is what I call the obedience test. Do I obey God's commands? Do I obey God's commands? Now, truth is important. But if you claim to know Christ and you do not obey him, your faith is not real. That's what John says here. True belief results in righteous living. Look what he says in chapter 2. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, and by this we know that we have come to know him. And you ought to circle that little word, if. If we keep his commandments. He says, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And in chapter 3, John says the same thing but in a negative way by t- stressing the, the uh, he puts it in terms of continuing in sin. Look what he says in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 3. He says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. You see, Gnosticism led to disobedience because they said, well, the body is sinful. The body is evil. All you need to worry about is the spirit within. And so therefore, you can do with your body whatever you want. It doesn't matter how you live as long as you guard your spirit. And that's the kind of thinking that is crept into our churches today. That as long as I profess Jesus, I can live any way I want. God doesn't care. God's grace will cover me. But God's promised. He'll never leave me. He'll never forsake me. I can't lose my salvation. You know what? Those are true for the genuine believer. And John says, if I have the attitude that I can live today like I did before I professed Christ? John says, there's something wrong. My Christianity is not real. My Christianity is fake. It's an imitation. He says, if we love God, if we love Christ, we will obey His commandments. Look in chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from God. And then look in chapter 3, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Now, we all know that he's not talking about perfection. None of us are perfect. 
Only Jesus was perfect, but here's what he is saying. If you're a believer, if you profess to be one of Jesus' disciples, it will be the pattern of your life to strive to live godly before him. To live a righteous life. A few years ago, I was watching... And ESPN, uh, 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 there was an analyst on there uh, who, who covers the NBA named Chris Broussard. And Chris Broussard was uh, asked, it was at the time when an active NBA player had come out as being openly gay and claiming to be Christian at the same time. And Chris Broussard was asked in an interview if that was possible. Broussard himself is a believer. And the interviewer asked, do you think, and they mentioned the young man's name, do you think he, anyone can be openly a practicing homosexual and be Christian at the same time? And here's what Chris Broussard said. Now, Before I get into this quote, you will misunderstand my point if all you're thinking about is the issue of homosexuality right now. That just happens to be the sin of this young man that was in question. But listen to what Chris Broussard said, and then I want you to fill in the blank and think about the the unrepentant sin in your own life. Listen to what he says. He said, Personally, I don't believe that you can live an openly homosexual lifestyle or be open about premarital sex between heterosexuals. If you're openly living that type of lifestyle, then the Bible says you know them by their fruits. It says that's sin. If you're, and here's where I want you to listen carefully. He says, if you're openly living in unrepentant, sin, whatever that may be. I believe that's walking in open rebellion to God and to Jesus Christ. So I would not characterize that one as a Christian. I want to ask you a question. Is Chris Broussard right? Or is he wrong? You have two men Two contrasting views of Christianity. Who's right and who's wrong? Well, according to John, look in chapter 2, verse 3. John says, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Friend, words alone without actions are empty. Can I just say to you this morning, with a pastor's heart and as a concerned fellow believer, you are not a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ if true belief, regardless of what you believe about Jesus, is not backed up by righteous living. John says, 
you will know them. You will know that you have come to know him if you keep his commandments. If you're not following Jesus, if you're not obeying Christ, John says, you cannot be his disciple. I mean, think about it like this. Think about it like this. Why do you think Jesus lived the life he lived if the kind of life you live doesn't matter? Why is it important that Jesus died the death he died if it doesn't matter how you and I live? How you and I live is very important. So here's the question. Do I who profess to know Jesus Christ, the God-man, the Son of God, do I, as his follower, obey his commands? That's the second test. Let me give you the third test, and I'll be through. Belief and obedience are difficult tests. But I think they are relatively easy compared to the third test. And that's what I call the love test. The love test. Do I love others in the same way that God loves me? You know, Jesus said in John 15 verse 12, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. So John writes, look here in 1 John chapter 4, verse 21. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must, look at that word, must also love his brother. In other words, if you're the real deal, you will also love the people of God. Regardless of their skin color, regardless of their background, regardless of the language they speak, regardless of their culture, regardless of their lifestyle, regardless of who they are, you and I must, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, love all of God's family. You know, it's easy to love those who we are like. Those who we have things in common with. It's hard to love people that are different than us. People that are difficult to get along with. People who have hurt us. People who have wronged us. People who 
smell, people who are dirty, people who look different than us, people who are weird, people who are just not like us. If you don't believe that, I want you to ask yourself, now, youth, you're different because you're in classes here in, um, <clears throat> at church um, by your age group. But I want you to think about the people that you hang with. Whether it's socially at school or whether it's a small group here at church. Why did you join that particular group? Chances are it's because you went in and you tried this group, that group, and maybe another group. And the group you landed in was the group that fit you better than any other group. You see, we're prone to love and to hang with the people that are closest to us, that share our likes, our dislikes. And yet John says, if I'm a true believer, if I'm truly a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I must Love all the people of God. This is how you will know them, the song says. They love one another. I want to ask you a question this morning. Do you love all the people of God's family? And I'm not just talking about the people here at Cornerstone. I'm talking about the people everywhere that say they belong to the family of God. Do you love them and accept them as your equal, as God's children? I want you to look in the final verse of the chapter 5. Look what it says there. Chapter 5, verse 21. John closes this letter by saying, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, why did he close this letter with that verse? Because John wants us to understand any Christ that we claim to follow that is not the Christ outlined in this book is an idol. It's a false Christ, an imitation. So therefore, if the Christ I say I follow is less than God and man in one, if he doesn't require righteous living from me, if I'm free to live as I choose, and if I think that I can look down on my fellow believer and look at them with anything less than the love 
of Christ. John says, you have invented a false Christ. And you are worshiping, not the real thing, you are worshiping an idol. So how do we know whether we're the real deal? There must be true belief, righteous behavior, and brotherly love. John says, that's how you know whether you're the real deal or not. Would you stand with me? <clears throat> I'm going to ask the band to come on up here, guys. We're going to give you an opportunity this morning to respond to the message. <clears throat> Maybe you're here this morning and maybe you've been wrestling with some of these issues in your own life. Maybe the Holy Spirit has spoken to you this morning about your own faith and whether it's genuine or not. Look, one of the reasons that I love the letter of 1 John, it's the book that God used to get me back on track as a young man. I read through this letter as a wayward college student and the Holy Spirit began to show me I was living a lie. My profession and faith in Christ was false. It was, it was not real. Because when I began to read those things about righteous behavior, I knew that my life didn't line up. I was disobeying God in many ways. I didn't have a love for all the people in the family of God. And my view of Jesus was incomplete. It was not real. And God began to show me who he is, who Jesus is, and what it took for me to genuinely profess him as my Savior and my Lord. So I ask you today, I know this book is convicting, I speak from personal experience, but it's also encouraging because God wrote it so that you and I would know whether we are his or not. And so if you feel any doubt, settle that between you and God today. You want to come and kneel at this altar? We welcome you to do that. If there's a decision you want to make, I'll be down here. Patrick will be down here if he needs to be. You do as God leads you to do today. If you're a guest with us this morning and God is leading you to join with the fellowship of Cornerstone, we would love to have you and your family be a part of uh, our church family. Um, whatever decision you need to make, the band's going to lead us. We're going to sing. You come as God leads you right now.